Hello, Hoopaholics, and welcome to the Box and One podcast. It's episode seven here, and probably the biggest guest that we've had thus far. To join us today is, is Jordan Sperber from Hoop Vision, former Division I basketball coach, a great mind. Somehow, he keeps track of pretty much everything that's going on in college hoops. And with the season starting up now, thought it was, it was no better time to have a guest like him on to preview the season, talk about how things have gone right out of the gate with some of the, the players or programs that he's watching and just have him tune us into what we need to be paying attention to ahead of this college season. So Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. How are you this evening? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Adam. I, I feel like we know each other, even though we don't know each other, just from following on, on Twitter for a bunch of years, I guess. It's like one of those relationships where you just followed the person for a long time and it feels like you know them. <laughs> Yeah, no, no doubt about that. I know we have a ton of, of uh, friends in common and mutual contacts that go through sure. the coaching industry and the basketball world as well. But I think both of us have uh, an appreciation for the coaching side of how we view work and scouting and uh, X's and O's, whatever it may be. And, and that's, I think, probably the, where the similarities start and end. Uh, because you go into a hell of a lot more depth than I ever, ever have. And, and again, I'm always amazed by how much you know on every school program, offense, defense, and just have a, an unbelievable amount of knowledge. So before I get to pick your brain on all of that fun stuff, there's one question we ask all of our guests as soon as they come on the podcast. And this is something that I stole from uh, some other guy out there who, who runs the podcast. <laughs> I wonder who that might be. <laughs> this idea of having a, a recurring question at the top of the pod, but uh, Jordan, you're up three with five seconds to go, and it's the other team's ball in the full court situation. What do you do? Do you foul? Do you play it out? What What does Jordan Sperber do? All right. Well, I'll answer that question, but because you have a recurring first question on your podcast that I do it on mine as well, uh, I'll give you a little bit of background. I stole that concept from this is going to be the most random you would never guess this person in a million years but arian foster's podcast the former nfl running back he he ended his podcast with the same i can't even remember what the question is i don't listen to that podcast anymore but he would end each podcast with the same one and that's where that's where i got the idea from so i stole it too so we're, we're all good there uh, but as for uh the answer to your question the fowler defend how much how much time five seconds five so? seconds full court inbound situation yeah so I actually have a YouTube video on, on this topic that I did. And a lot of I, I, what I borrowed for that, uh, for that video, the research was from Ken Pomeroy, which he did a, a study. It's now a, a fairly old on, on uh, the numbers behind Fowler Defend. And one of the main things from that piece of work is the two sides are pretty even. You know, I think one of them is 92% chance of winning and one of them is 93% chance of, of winning, whether you're, you're fouling or defending. So there is a lot of uh, debate that goes into a topic that is ultimately probably no real wrong answer. Um, that being said, uh, with five seconds left, I do think that's pretty uh, um pretty opportune time for fouling it's like you know I, I don't I definitely don't want to foul too early but five seconds is, is good time there um so I would if I'm taking your question completely at face value I would consider fouling however how I would normally answer this question is if for some reason you made me have to pick one option for my team for an entire season regardless you know depending on the times the times could be different where the ball is different the circumstances could all be different i would just choose defend um, because I, I think that there are certain times certain situations where fouling um where i'm not the biggest fan of it um so if i had to pick one it would be defend but i think that as a coach i'd probably mix and match a little bit you know with with both strategies yeah it's it's a lot more black and white to just say hey go out there defend that's what we do period and now no you doubt. don't have to worry about somebody fouling when they shouldn't or you know not hearing the message and executing it properly you know we had one guest come on earlier on the pod and, and say that they would instruct their team to foul only if the other team caught the ball moving away from their attacking basket. Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of caveats to it. And I think thus a lot of ways to, to mess it up, but yep. certainly a, uh, 
an interesting question that divides a lot of people in the coaching community. And we actually, we got the idea for asking a question from you, but we got the question itself from a coach's group chat that I've been in for five or six years where nice. we constantly go back and forth with each other and send each other clips every time one of us is proven right or wrong. <laughs> being exchanged in that one. So uh, <clears throat> funny how that works. But Jordan, we're recording this here on, on Monday night, November 15th. We're about a week into the college basketball season. And I know small sample sizes are something that you and I are both pretty weary of, but on the same token, I think there's enough games and, and data at play to see major changes that might be put in place or just some of the overall trends that are taking place in college basketball. So I'm going to turn the floor over to you right from the start here. What are some of the major updates, surprises, or, or things that you've been watching one week into the college basketball season? Mm. I think that this is the, the, the thing that comes to mind is, is probably two years in the making here. I think the big shift was actually last season and that with each progressive season, I think we'll get more and more teams um, going in the, in this direction. And that's five out um, a, a lot of five out basketball and, you know, not necessarily every team is, is uh, using it uh, over 50% of plays or, or something like that, the majority of, of their offense, but it seems like everyone at least has a five out package, you know, like um, some type of flexibility, you know, a team like Gonzaga um, who had a big game this weekend with uh, Chet Holmgren and Drew Timmy, obviously they're very, they're big and five out doesn't make a ton of sense for them with how good Timmy is with his back to the basket and their size, but even they, you know, halfway through a possession, Timmy will be ducking in hard, trying to get a post up. And then he just kind of pops out to the perimeter and they play five out out of it. Um, and I don't think that was something Gonzaga was doing five years ago. Um, and so we see a lot of that. There's, you know, mid-major teams that have skilled bigs um, that, that like to handle the ball that will do it even more at, at a higher frequency. Um, but that's probably... Uh, the biggest thing I, I tweeted a meme before the season started uh, that is it's always hard to explain a meme in words right that's like the whole point of a meme but it's <laughs> the idea that all these coaches that were running continuity ball screen are now running uh, like tr uh, five out delay is is what the NBA calls it I believe like delay action yeah. and, and it's, it's funny I'm taking over as a head coach at a program now at the high school ranks and we're running a lot of five out delay stuff so mm -hmm. it's it's funny how it all seems to kind of trickle down and, and ends up being uh, in vogue right now I think a lot of times you got to make a decision whether it fits your personnel and that's I think first and foremost what we're seeing is more skilled players who are bigger that can shoot the three, stretch the floor, take guys off the dribble. They come into the college game ready to play like that. Five out becomes a much more enticing option because it meets your players where they are. Yeah, uh, and you can see it in the numbers. I'm pulling up Kempom right here. And uh, he, the way he, on his site, you can see this is seven days into the season right now. And you can compare how this compare how statistics were seven days into previous seasons as well. Mm -hmm. um, and to kind of highlight this uh, three point percentage is, or sorry, three point attempts are the second highest ever in, in college basketball through set through the seventh day. And the only time that it was higher, the only time more threes were being taken was in 2019, which was right before they ended up moving the line back, you know, so we're, we're starting to already approach those levels of when the, when the three point line got moved back and offensive rebounding percentage is uh, it's been, it's been low the last three years, but it continues to be low. And I think both of those things are indicative of five out basketball of the, of really moving your five men away from the basket. It shouldn't be a surprise that offensive rebounding is going to decrease. And I think it is to your point. Um, I, I, that it depends on your personnel and it's not like five out is this magic uh, scheme that's going to make you automatically good. In fact, I think that when, when Villanova was having their success, winning their two championships, there were a bunch of, Villanova imitators running, you know, four out one in spread ball screen stuff. And they didn't shoot the ball like Villanova. And then by trying to play this style, now they weren't getting offensive rebounds and they, you know, and it was like, it's hard. You don't want to be a bad version of, of the 
of whatever style it is, you know? So um, by no means, do I think it's like a fix all, but it is still a trend that's happening around the country. And I know we'll, we'll touch on a couple trends and counter trends as we go on here in the podcast, but I think that's a really interesting one. One other question for you that you kind of brought up or hinted at was the three point line moving back a couple of years ago. I think with the COVID season last year, really hard to know what was going to be a long-term change or I think just, for data gathering purposes, it's really hard mm-hmm. to look at last year and know what to take away from it because it, there are so many variables at play. But what, what do you think are some of the, the long-term changes or effects of that three-point line moving back? Is it people taking fewer threes, lower percentages, more shots at the rim, higher percentages at the rim because to def- help defenders have a half step farther to, to close mm-hmm. out or, or to you know cover ground on? What, what's your kind of hypothesis or major takeaway initially yeah so i i i think when when the line got moved back the the hypothesis that i believed was going to happen and and i think is happening it takes some time for these these changes to to um occur is initially three point percentage is going to drop and offenses are going to get less efficient as a result and it did happen again i'm looking at at the numbers here in uh, 2018 or sorry, in 2019, 1.01 points per possession. Then when, with the line moved back in 2020, 0.98. So, you know, a 0.03 decrease. Um, but, and, and this is consistent with the, the time before this, that they moved the three point line back. So th- there's an initial drop in three point percentage, but then in the coming season, season two, three, four, as um, three point per, three point percentage players adjust essentially, you know the players adjust, three point percentage increases, and then to your your point, I do think the ultimate effect of this is now there's more space on the court. It takes years, and I, I think we're getting close, but we're not completely at the the adjustment. But once that happens, I do think it's good for offense. The the um, the line moving back. Um, to increase spacing and uh, and open up the paint a little bit. Yeah, I certainly agree. That was always my hypothesis is that, you know, maybe the three-point numbers level down and then spike back up a couple of years into this. But at the end of the day, we're probably going to see a higher frequency or at least efficiency of shots at the rim if there's credible threats in the corners and, and help defenders who are, you know, the sink and fill or help the helper guy have a longer pathway to travel. So yep, um, that was kind of my initial thought there but you know on the topic of five out and I think a lot of ball screens that are really prevalent in today's game it's a very dribble drive oriented system in college basketball more so than it ever has been and one of the defensive tactics that's most successful in stopping dribble penetration is switching ball screens handoffs finding ways to negate that at the point of attack was pretty famous over the last decade thanks to the Golden State Warriors and we see a lot of times trickle-down effects from NBA to college and to other levels. Switching seems to be a little bit more popular, at least from what I've noticed in Division I ranks than maybe it was a few years ago. And really caught my eye in the UCLA-Villanova game from uh, this past weekend, where both teams were switching frequently. I know Villanova's done it a lot in the past, Mm -hmm. and UCLA's starting to do it a little bit more. But it seemed like two teams that were really content just switching from each other and then going mismatch hunting for most of the game. And Mm -hmm. to me, that's not an aesthetically pleasing style of basketball. And it's certainly not one that you can have consistent success with because you're kind of banking on guys to make one-on-one plays. What are your thoughts on how to best attack a switching defense, especially, you know, if, um, if it's going to create mismatches that are in your favor do you want to consistently be exploiting those and playing through a mismatch? Or are you more of a, hey, the, the ball needs to move. This offense is what we run. Let's not take the bait of slowing down and just going at the same guy time and time again. Yeah, I think it's easier said than done. Um, but ideally, I would like the switches to material or the mismatches to materialize within the flow and ball movement of a possession as opposed to you know, just ISOing the, the mismatch right away. So, I mean, uh, mismatches can be off the ball as, as well as on the ball where a big, a, a five man who usually guards the post all game, isn't used to 
being guarding at the top of the key and having to stunt and recover. Um, and then his closeout is, is late. And then, you know, you get, you get the uh, domino effect of, of, of that bad closeout. It's definitely easier said than done though. You know, a lot of teams um, going up against switches get a little bit more creative with, with isolation by like boomerang passing, which is where you, you kind of give the ball handler a running start at, at the switch. So it's a little bit more strategic than like a, a mid post ISO or, or something like that, that college players aren't particularly good at really. Um, and then of course, slipping to the basket is, is another one on those switches um, where the Warriors have been the best at this out of timeouts and things like that with Draymond Green setting the screen for Steph and, and slipping to the basket, things like that. I remember them doing it against the Rockets a lot when uh, the Rockets were, were switching in their coverages. Um, yeah, there is definitely a reason, though, why we're seeing so many t- switches. It's tactically, it's a, it's a tough, th- tough thing to figure out sometimes. Yeah, no doubt. I think the when I was a college coach at the Division three level, uh, I was playing in a league with a, a defensive program, Grove City College up in Western Pennsylvania, and they play a really, really extreme form of switching and denying one pass away. They play like four guys that are posts, and they just run flex. Hmm. They switch everything. They do a great job on the glass, and they have length everywhere. It's really hard to score against them. And I think it takes you out of your normal rhythm of offense uh, very, very easily, especially as we see more ball screens and, and more you know, two-man actions that result in, in the college game nowadays. But I, I think there are also more natural ways to go at it than just, like you said, mid, mid-post ISOs, trying to play and slow the game down to just direct traffic and get to the one guy who has the best advantage. Like There are ways to naturally do it and play through pace. I'm curious to see whether both Villanova or UCLA kind of fell into that trap because it's early season. You haven't necessarily had as much time to practice or prepare for things like that as you might have come January, February, and March. Mm-hmm. I think particularly with UCLA, they have some high, high level shot makers and one-on-one players. You know, I, I remember that Gonzaga, they have essentially the same team as last year in that Gonzaga game where they, they were just hitting tough mid-range jumper after tough mid-range jumper. Like um, that's, they're probably better equipped to just uh, ISO out of it and things like that than almost every college team, I would say. Interestingly, on the topic of switching, um, Texas against um, Gonzaga this weekend, uh, Chris Beard, I, I, he's become very well known for his no middle defense, and I'm certainly one of the culprits of that. I've wrote about it a hundred million times at, at this point, the no middle. Um, but the thing that's been equally as important to that defense is that they switch, they've switched everything one through five, and it kind of works in unison with the no middle. You can't run any ball screens against them because they switch everything. So then, then they're able to keep the ball out of the middle, but against Gonzaga, they didn't, they didn't switch. So I, there may be a couple possessions in the second half, um, but they, for the most part, they did not switch. And, you know, Gonzaga opened the game with Nemhard hitting the roll man um, on the first play of the game. That they, they were killing him off of ball screens. And I think that's very interesting. I mean, uh, it could have been because they don't want a guard on Timmy, which is a reasonable thing. He's probably the best post scorer in the country. It also, I, I don't think that their big guys are great one-on-one. So it, it might be a personnel thing. Um but it was surprising to me and I don't think it was talked about that much um, that they didn't switch. And yeah, that's, it's, I mean, guarding Gonzaga is going to be tough no matter what, but it, it, uh, it was a big part of that game. Well, it is, it's surprising because that's not something Chris Beard typically does. He's very yes. identity based, right? They have their system and their style and they don't really cater to anybody. So you're seeing a little bit of, now maybe it has to do with the roster that they have this year. They've got a ton of depth, a little bit more length than he's typically used to on the wings than in his time at Texas Tech. So, uh, you know, who knows exactly what the, the thought process is behind that. But I thought that was a super fascinating game. And, and Texas putting out, you know, a guy like Timmy Allen, who wasn't necessarily comfortable shooting threes, giving Timmy, Drew Timmy, somebody to guard on the other end. Yep. And Gonzaga's two big men not really getting exploited by teams that want to spread you out and play in pace. It was kind of the, the perfect situation for Gonzaga to, to win a game. And I think that's probably part of the reason why they ran away with it there. But, um, you know, Jordan, I think there are, there are two teams that I'm always looking out for. 
just because of my fandom and how I, I grew up. I was a huge Duke fan. So okay. always looking at Duke and UNC. Uh, Duke is massive this year, super athletic, really, really big on their front line. I'm, I'm sure you saw the Duke-Kentucky game like the rest mm-hmm. of the world did to kick off college basketball season. They've played two more since then. What do you think of, of this iteration of, of the Duke team in Coach K's last run? Is this a national title contender? And, and what do you think about playing a roster that has that much size up front, even if they don't shoot it great? Mm. Yeah, I, honestly, I'm, I'm not. I, I, we talked about sample size in the beginning and I'm, I'm not really sure yet with Duke. I certainly watched the Kentucky game and they looked really good in particular. Trevor Keels looked really, really good. Um, and I haven't seen the, the two games since then. Um, but his numbers haven't been good. <laughs> I can, t- I can tell you that much. So it is, it's, it is interesting that like you, maybe we saw the best Trevor Keels game of the season in game number one. And that, um, but that being said, my, my impression from that game was between Keels and Bancaro, these were two guys that rem- they their ability to score at the rim and from inside the arc, it was giving me Zion Williamson, RJ Barrett vibes, you know, um, and I'm not sure if that's going to actually be the case or not, but my logic from that first game was, you know, Oscar Shibwe is a pretty good rim protector and, and they're doing it against him in, in Kentucky. Um, the other interesting thing, which I wrote about from that game is they didn't have a single point off of a spot up, which is really hard to do in in a basketball, in a division one college basketball game. Um, I haven't checked since, but in the first two days of the season, they were the only team to not score a single point off of a spot up, just really just meaning like a catch and shoot jumper or, or, or something of that variety. They hit one, three in that game and it was off of a Keels ISO off the bounce three. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that this, this team has better defensive personnel than they have in recent years. So that's, that's a big bonus. I, I think that they're good, um, for sure. Uh, you know, they're not, they're not going to miss the NCAA tournament, you know, (laughs) like, like, like last year. Uh, but I'm, I, I think it's a little bit too deep to be determined what their ceiling is right now. Sure. And the reason I bring up Duke is because they're fascinating as a team. Like you said, they didn't score off of spot up stuff. Now they've changed that a little bit in, in their last couple of games now going up against you mm-hmm. know, army and, and like, it's going to provide a little bit more opportunity for that, but they're not a great catch and shoot team. I know it's a small sample, but they're 29% on catch and shoots this year, which is really, really low. And it, it kind of confirms a little bit with what you know about the roster, which is that they're super physical, great individual players, but do they share it well enough and do they space the floor well enough to knock down those open looks? That's to me, the biggest thing uh, to, to watch with the Duke team. Conversely, as a, as a Duke fan, you have to watch UNC and know a lot about the rival school. And this is a, a fascinating year for them moving on from Roy Williams, who had some, uh, some consternation about the spacing in his offense the last few years, <laughs> just aesthetic purposes and, And I know for guys like Cole Anthony, who were great NBA prospects, but didn't necessarily perform well in college, it was really tough to operate and show the skills that you need for the NBA as a lead guard. Hubert Davis, a week in, has he opened things up more? Is there anything that you noticed or picked up on right away from UNC out of the gate? Yeah, so there definitely have been some changes. I was was curious coming into the season because – Hubert Davis was scooped up by Roy Williams, like fresh out of ESPN. Right. I don't, I don't know if he has coaching experience before then. Um, So yeah, I was, I was, I thought maybe he would, he would continue with the, with the system. If you know, he hasn't been exposed to different coaching staffs and, and, and all that, of course, when you're doing scouting, you're always seeing what other teams are doing. So, you know, um, but there's been a, a pretty significant amount of changes in the um, the Brown game, their, their most recent game. Uh, I watched that one pretty closely and they're still running the their secondary break, their Carolina break um, a little bit. They I think I had like five possessions labeled as pure Carolina break. Um, but in the it, when when they're not running that a lot of their early offense stuff is into ball screens spread ball screens into in particular and it's not like Roy Williams never ran ball screen stuff they actually did run some continuity stuff last year and the year before that 
um, but it was not the the focus in, in his freelance motion, you know, which is the one that he was running for years and years. Um, but yeah, Hubert Davis has been running chin action into into ball screens, and then also what I call through action, which is just the point guard cutting through to the other side and and getting a ball screen on the second side of the court. Um, that being said their best offensive players for the most part are bigs. You know, Brady Manick is their highest usage guy. Armando Baycott um, is, is another pretty high usage back to the basket player. And then Dawson Garcia has been pretty good too. So I, I do think that the scheme has, and the system has changed quite a bit, but the personnel is set up in a way where it's still a back to the basket post-up type of team, regardless uh, you know, they're playing two bigs. And um, so there, there's still some some uh, remnants from from like a typical Carolina style. For sure. And, and I think that now that they have two lead guards and guys and RJ Davis, who was a super prolific high school scorer up in New York City and in Caleb Love, who many thought would be a, a one and done last year, uh, playing through both of those guys, having more of a ball screen attack or, or using both to their advantage. Uh, space in the floor is going to be pretty important. So really like uh, what I saw. I watched the the UNC Loyola game. So the other game, the first one that they played, we have a, a couple of guys from the school that I coach at who are on the roster at Loyola. So I wanted to, nice. to tune in and, and show them a little bit of love. But uh, but UNC did look, look a lot more fluid on offense and modern, if those are two words that uh, don't necessarily describe the end of the Roy Williams era there. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, move, moving on to just kind of a general question, and, and this is something that I've battled with or, or wrestled with the last several years when I was coaching in college, is the, the different trends in team building at this point. Some colleges, some schools try to go a little bit more towards one and dones, especially at that high level, finding value in, you know, getting the best prospects available, continuing to reload year after year. I think there's a lot of teaching that goes into that but it's a, it's a great way to make sure that you always have some of the most talented guys on the basketball floor. The other team building method has been a little bit more through the transfer route, whether it's grad transfers, taking guys from lower levels and poaching them up to your program, just knowing what they are as a commodity and taking out the uncertainty of recruitment. And is this guy really going to pan out when he gets to our level? It's a lot easier to project that from you know, the Mac to the Big Ten than it is from high school to the Big Ten. And with this past year in COVID and all these extra eligibility seasons and guys coming back and seemingly 30-year-old men out there on the floor, like it's going to be a year where we see a lot of differences in experience, in team building models, and how people go about that. Is there one area that you think is the optimal way to kind of build a team? Is it a mixture of older guys and younger guys? Like even Kentucky, who is a perennial one-and-done type of powerhouse, has some more transfers and old heads on their roster than we're used to seeing. So I don't know if you know Calipari is changing his tune and trying to sprinkle in some older guys. But very open-ended question there, Jordan. Not very well-worded, but we're seeing a, a lot of different things in college basketball. Where do you land on the, the transfer, the young guys type of investment route? Yeah, well... Uh, a few things come to mind. I mean, there's the, the adage get old, stay old is something that, that coaches talk about a lot. I mean, yeah, clearly older players are, if, if, if you would rather have given two equal players or, or the same player, you'd rather him be a senior with experience than a freshman. Obviously right. you even see, you know, free, something as simple as free throw percentage increases as each year of, of, a, of a player's career um, goes on. Uh, but, you know, talent is just as important. And ultimately I think that the right answer is finding your best source of talent, given your your schools, resources, geography, all these different things. Like each, I was at New Mexico State and Nevada, and the way you recruit at New Mexico State is much different than at Nevada. Just you know, there there aren't there aren't that many good basketball players in the New Mexico area, so you have to go out of state. We would go junior college, but you know, just it kind of depends on each school. Um, but the other thing that comes to mind is um, there was a time where I can think of two times when that when there was 
a clear, and I'm no recruiting expert, but when there were two um, pretty clear like market inefficiencies, and this was the first one was maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago with international players, right? We saw it with St. Mary's and Gonzaga and no one, not most schools were not recruiting overseas to that extent. And so as a school that was recruiting overseas, you had less competition. It's supply and demand. It's, you know, just like basic economics. And that was very successful for St. Mary's and Gonzaga and, and programs like that. But eventually everyone catches on and catches up. And it's much harder now to get that Australian player that was consistently going to St. Mary's because now it's Jack White who's going to Duke or, you know, or something like that, you know. And I think a similar phenomenon happened with sit-out transfers. So with grad transfers, which is now no one has to sit out anymore, but, but grad transfers were the, were the um, players that didn't have to sit out and high majors were very interested in grad transfers, but they, this is now five, 10 years ago, maybe, maybe even just five years ago, they didn't, you know, like a, a UNC would have never recruited really a grad transfer either, but definitely not a, a sit out transfer. And so I was at Nevada. I mean, coach Muss is was like one of the the uh one of the people at the forefront of getting sit out transfers and we got guys that were good enough to be playing at high majors and now would go high major if if they transferred but at that time they weren't being recruited but i think that market inefficiency has gone too you know so uh there i'm sure there's something else out there now you know that 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 it's it, it comes in cycles um, but the transfer market, if anything, is probably oversaturated at, at this point with, with, with the demand. It's definitely oversaturated. It was, uh, it was always strange during the pandemic, waking up and checking the portal every morning and seeing how many names were in there. With that COVID year of eligibility, it's just it's, it's mercenary basketball at this point. And we know it won't stay this way forever. There are going to be you know, ebbs and flows and things that change. And obviously, the COVID year throws everything off. But to me, the biggest challenge is if you're a really good program at, at developing or identifying talent in the mid to low major territory, it's harder to hang on to your guys now than it ever has been in the past. You know, I, I think there's a two-part question here. One is, is the gap shrinking talent-wise between some of these mid-major programs and maybe some of these, these major conference programs, part of that being the experience that they have by the time they, you know, face these inexperienced, younger, but talented major programs. And then the second part of this is what can be done to incentivize or try to help guys to stay at mid-major programs? Because it seems to me like NLIs are going to, you know, continue to come out year after year after year, but this new ability for guys to find uh, my money in college basketball is going to tip the scales even more in favor of, of the big schools. I don't know. I don't know how to really phrase it well, but now that I can make, make money off of my likeness and image, I'm much more willing to go to a, a larger market, so to speak. It's like free agency in the NBA, where if I can make money on commercials and advertisement deals, I make more in New York than I do in Sacramento. Uh, and mid majors might get squeezed with that. So I, you know, well, something that keeps me up at night sometimes is thinking about how do we how do we protect the little guys and the Cinderellas that everybody loves in March, but end up getting their talent poached if they do really well, and uh, and I think that they almost get punished for being that close to closing the gap between some of those major conference programs. Yeah, I think the 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 point you made about um, name, image, and likeness. I think it's a little bit too early to, to say either way. I feel like if you talk to coaches within the profession, everyone's still kind of confused about it. There's no but, doubt about that. Right. And potentially, I, I, I guess the question becomes like, now certain mid-major schools or low-major schools have a very limited fan bases, but there are some you know, I'm from I'm from Albany, New York, and like the Siena College, they they play in a big arena and it has a pretty good fan base. Like, I think you could make an argument that a superstar Siena basketball player could be just as um, 
profitable as like Oregon State or something like that, you know, like a, a low level power conference. But uh, yeah, it's this stuff is all still sort. I think that businesses and companies are still trying to figure out how to how to market college athletes, who to who to market, and, and that type of thing. Um, and there's still like rules that kind of need, need to be put in place. And, uh, so it, it's hard to say, um, there, I think there's a lot in flux with the game. And the thing that I worry about is there really is no one like looking out for the best interest of the sport. So in, in, because, you have athletic directors and presidents and conference commissioners, but they all, and it's per perfectly reasonable that they have their own self-interest, but there's not like people rigorously trying to study these things and figure out, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit the wild West and also college football plays such a big role in like conference realignment and things like that. Um, so it's, it is a bit of a mess for sure. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and I, again, I think your your point is spot on with giving it a little bit more time before we jump to conclusions. I might be jumping the gun on that one with, you know, mid-majors being a little bit more of a disadvantage. But I always think that for the casual fan, there's nothing better than turn, tuning in that second weekend in March and trying to figure out who the biggest Cinderella is and just jumping on that bandwagon. And, you know, I remember, what was it, a couple of years ago when Butler first made their run with with Brad Stevens and hearing about the application rates that just suddenly increased at Butler as a result. This is a huge deal for the institutions. That's why they pump so much money into athletics. And, and again, someone who's looking out for, for the little guy sometimes in this is, is something that, that I'm definitely concerned with. But speaking of mid-majors, where are you at on some of the, the top mid-major programs right now? Is there one that you have your eye on that you think is going to have a great season or maybe is a, a school or, or even a player, one, one specific guy that, uh, that we are not collectively paying enough attention to? The, I, I did a newsletter today where um, one of my, I, I do like five observations every Monday. And one of the five was uh, on Colorado State, which Mountain West is a high mid-major, if you will, <laughs> you know, it's, it's somewhere in between. Um, but it's not, a, not from the power six. Uh, I, I, I am very high on Colorado state state, particularly their offense. Um, and, uh, if, if there's one player on their team, that's, that's fun to watch. It's David Roddy. He's well, like a uh, six, six big guy, a little like Draymond Greeny in him, you know, um, He's, he's fun to watch. He's, he uh, seems to have gotten a lot more athletic from, from what I remember. He had a nice pump fake uh, finish with a dunk against uh, uh, maybe against uh, Oral Roberts. And yeah, they, they run five out stuff with him that, that I was talking about earlier. They're, they definitely run a bunch of five out stuff. They run some like Princeton type of offense and, um, and, the, and then ball screens as well. Um, I'm, I, I am, can almost guarantee that I'll have some more content on them coming. Um, and then another team, which I was a big fan of last year that has almost everyone back except for their best player is, uh, uh, Loyola Chicago would, would, would be another one that, uh, they have a new coach and Cameron Crutwig's gone. Um, but they're, they're a fun watch too. Yeah, no doubt about it. Shout out Drew Valentine there, taking the, taking the reins, uh, yeah, David Roddy, an interesting one. He reminds me a lot of Anthony Lamb from Vermont from a few years ago. To yeah, kind of do same it all. Body type. Same yeah. body type, kind of play yep. multiple different positions. And the offense is perfectly catered to use his versatility in a lot of different ways. So I, a good call there on, on the Rams. I think that's, that's one team that we're certainly going to be watching for. But with Roddy, uh, kind of brings up a, a question that I have on, on Cinderella teams. What do you think is more important to identifying a Cinderella team that's going to be successful in March? Is it one individual player who can succeed on the big stage with all those talented guys, or is it scheme culture, you know, the great equalizers in those ways? Cause last year we saw a lot of different ways to, to go about it. You know, Max A. Smith and Kevin Obinor at Oral Roberts were two clearly talented guys that kind of carried the mantle for them. Jason Preston at Ohio helped beat Virginia 
And then you have a team like Abilene Christian who just plays super, super hard defense, doesn't have one major talented go-to guy, pull off a major upset over Texas. What do you think is the best recipe? Is it player-based? Is it scheme and, and things that you hold up in March against better programs? What's your thought? I think that we tend to, after the fact, assign the narrative to, to what happened in the upset. Um, I remember one year it was uh, Marshall. Marshall won a game. I think they beat Wichita State and, and another team won. Uh, there was another upset that year too. And they both did happen to be three-point shooting teams, you know, like Marshall, especially spread, spread you out three-point shooting team. And that was kind of like the narrative that year. The year before that, I think Yale won a game. They beat they beat Baylor, I believe, and they were a really good offensive rebounding team and had bigs. It was kind of like the opposite of of the the three point shooting. Um, so the nature of March and a one and done tournament is that there are a lot of individual instances happening, and we kind of find the narratives from there. That being said, you know clearly there's some, you know, like you think about Steph Curry's run or Max Aismas with that, like you mentioned with Oral Roberts. I mean, there's, there's clearly something to uh, having a pro. Um, I mean, I, I, Kylo Quinn who ended up being an NBA player, you know, like guys like that, there, there definitely has been something there. Um, but ideally you have the, that talent and you have great scheme and great, you know, you, you have it a little bit of everything, you know, <laughs> we, wouldn't we all love to have both, have it both ways. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Jordan, I wanted to pick your brain on one of the more recent videos that you had out there, which is on Bell Armin, one of the, the newer division one programs and a really fascinating piece on kind of how they score without dribbling, without setting ball screens and always have a super, super efficient attack would you mind giving us the cliff notes version of it and and just kind of what your main takeaways were yeah so uh bellarmine university transitioned to d1 uh last season was, was was their first year and in the 10 years prior they were one of the best division two programs in the country they won one national championship made three other final fours and they in, in those 10 years they finished the season I think their worst finish in D2 was number six in field goal percentage. That was their worst season. They led the country in field goal percentage, like six out of their last 10 years or, or, or something around there. Um, and as you said, their offensive style is essentially like a motion offense on steroids. Um, they, I guess when I think of motion, like a Bob Knight motion, I think of more, uh, like pin downs and, and shooting, you know, curling off of screens. They don't do as much of that. It's much more basket cuts, you know, cuts to the basket, reverse the ball, two people cut into the basket. Of course they do complement those cuts and, and um, go, someone popped to the three point line. Uh, but it's surprising given how much they pass the ball and their personnel that they don't take that many threes relative to, to the NCAA average. And so for that video, um, we charted their dribbles and passes just by watching them, you know, they don't dribble a lot, but I wanted some proof, so, some evidence. And, uh, they take, I think it's somewhere between 100 and 150 fewer dribbles than their opponents per game. Um, and it, so that was, that was how I got the title of the video, which is the team that doesn't dribble. Of course, every team dribbles, um, but it's all relative and it, it is, it's they're they're a perfect example of why I find the college basketball college basketball so appealing. The different styles of play, the extreme um, ball screen teams versus the extreme motion teams, and everything in between. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point there. I think it's it's a much more fascinating for a like a tactician standpoint than what you see a lot of times at the NBA because it's just you know, everybody's so good at everything. A lot of teams are just stealing the same ideas and putting them into play. But uh, no I, I love the video and, and I keep finding myself fascinated with trying to figure out ways to zig when other teams zag, right? Like if everybody's setting ball screens and playing this style, what can you do offensively? That's just going to be different. And there's value that just as, you know, a coach who's gone through a bunch of different seasons, scouting and preparing for different teams, 
there's value in being the one that's different on everybody's schedule. Because at, at some point, teams aren't going to invest that much into preparing for how you play and try to stick to doing what they do. And you can, you know, I, I think, gain a little bit extra by just being different in that regard. So uh, found that video and, and a little bit of a dive into Bell Arm and a little bit fascinating. One other team that's transitioned from a lower level of basketball to Division One is Merrimack over the last couple of years. And, and they did so with an amazing amount of success in their conference, playing predominantly a 2-3 zone and, and being really, really aggressive with it. Do you think that for these programs that transition from Division Two to Division One or, or wherever they're coming from, having a clear identity that's really going to be their bread and butter regardless allows them to get off to a hotter start? Or am I just kind of reading into two examples of this kind of slightly overlapping? Well, I mean, I think you probably know even better than me, having been a, a D3 coach, that, you know, the the difference between the top D1 and the or sorry, the bottom D1 and the top D2 and the bottom D2 and the top D3 there, it's pretty negligible um, there. And yeah, so it, it kind of depends a team like Bellarmine and I don't know Merrimack's track record before they transition, but I'm assuming it was very good at, yeah. at the D2, D2 level. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that the, the style of play in both of those cases, they do happen to be very unique and it probably was, uh, annoying for the, those conference opponents to have a new, have a, you know, when you, when you're in a conference and you play the same teams every year, those scouts tend to be pretty easy after, after a while. And I'm sure that the Merrimack and the, and the Bellman scouts were, were not very easy. Um, but yeah, they, they're very different in, in how the two do it. Um, but given that both rosters, Merrimack, we've already talked about Bellman, but Merrimack, the, the thing that's so different about them compared to like a Syracuse, the, another two, three zone team is that they're small, or at least they were. Um, and, uh, and I, I would argue that they, that they are kind of optimizing um, their, their roster given the unique style of defense, just like Bellarmine doesn't have a ton of guys that can beat you off the dribble and in one-on-one -on -one situations. And they're, they, they're doing what they do with the motion offense. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, Jordan, I know, I think last year you did a video on kind of 10 trends or, or things X's and O's wise that you were seeing a lot in college basketball. I don't know if you're planning on doing something similar again this year, but figured I'd, I'd just pick your brain again on some of the X's and O's trends that you've seen starting season. I know you mentioned five out. I know that there's a, a lot of uh, switching going on defensively, and perhaps we start to see more counters to that that organically come up from different teams. Are there any other X's and O's that you've noticed that are starting to become new or more popular at the college level? So the, the two things that come to mind um, that I've seen a lot of early in the season, they're not necessarily, I wouldn't call them new, uh, but just having, you know, early on in the year, I try to watch a lot of teams in a, in a short, in a short amount of time, just to get up to date on, on everyone. And in this last week or so, the two things that I've noticed are a lot of empty ball screens. So empty, meaning the corner where the, or the side where the ball screen is on, no one is in that corner. The corner is empty. So all, there you have your ball handler, your ball screener, and then the three other players are on the other side of the court. Uh, I've seen a lot of those, you know, in early offense sets, all, all different ways. Um, and the other thing that I've seen a lot of, which I think this is old school in, in, in a, in a sense is just straight up slice screens into post-ups. We talked about uh, North Carolina with their bigs. They run a lot of slice stuff to get, to get their bigs on the block. Colorado state runs slice stuff for, for David Roddy. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of that. Uh, usually it goes into slice into a screen, the screener. So you, you send the, the, uh, big down to the, um, to the, uh, to the block. And then you screen for the player that screened for that big. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think that it's either of those things are, um, particularly innovative, but I can tell you that just based off of the clips that I've gathered, I could probably put together like, uh, 
three minute videos of different teams running those, those two things or something like that, you know, so there's been a lot of that. Yeah. And I, I've also seen a lot more middle pick and pop that ends up getting switched or, you know, pop back, you hit the popper into a zoom action, right. Into the, those dribble handoffs, like teams yep. trying to play through a little bit more pace um, instead of essentially picking at the, the switch itself, they're throwing it to the screener and trying to play off the next action, which I think is, is also pretty smart on that one. And I think mm-hmm. Ohio state has done that a little bit more uh, this year than, than what I remember seeing in the past. So I'm, I'm a big Chris Holtman guy. He ran probably the best practice that I've ever seen in person. So, um, you know, I always try to check out what he's doing and, and, and running with his teams. Were you there at a, when he was at Ohio state or before? He's actually that? at Butler okay. yeah, when he was still at Butler, uh, gone to a couple of their, team camps and, and other things when he was at Ohio state and, and, um, but not, didn't get to actually see a practice there, but when he was at Butler meticulous, organized, great job. Uh, it was, uh, I'll took a lot of notes that day, put it that way. Nice. Nice. So, well, Jordan, thank you for, for coming on here before we get out of here, let the people know where can they find you? What work do you have coming out soon? And, and just plug some of your stuff out there. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me again, Adam. I, I appreciate it. I had a good time. I am, uh, Hoop Vision 68 on, on Twitter. Uh, and I pretty much tweet out anything that I do. Um, so that's that's sort of the the easiest way to follow. Um, but I do have a newsletter uh, that is, uh, it's a substack, hoopvision.substack.com. The link is also at the Twitter account. Um, and, and yeah, thanks again for having me. Jordan was a pleasure. Always uh, enjoy talking hoops with with a guy who who gets coaching, who gets hoops. Uh, and I've uh, I got to say, week into the college basketball season, I've got the itch again. So nice for you to come <laughs> on here and help me scratch it. But uh, I know we'll stay in touch soon. But uh, thank you again for for taking your time this evening. Thanks, Adam. Yeah.